mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out from my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make known, and you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Please be seated. Samuel is speaking to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. It speaks to how he has acted foolishly, how he had not kept the commandment of the Lord. And in verse 14, Samuel says to Saul, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The Lord has sought for himself 
a man after his own heart. What do you know about this man after God's own heart? You might recall 2 Samuel 11. It happened in the spring of the year. For those who are familiar with their Bibles, all it takes is that first line. And you know what comes next. At the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening. See, it really wasn't intended to happen this way. It, it happened one evening. David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And on the story continues. David sends his messengers to bring this woman. Seeing wasn't enough. Covening wasn't enough. He took this woman unto himself and fulfilled his desire. And then he attempted to hide it. James 1.14 says, But each man, each one, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Seeing, coveting, taking, hiding. It's not the only place in Scripture where you see that particular cycle. It reminds me of the story of Achan as well. So what's become of this man after God's own heart? And, and how could such a man be found in the Scriptures to go to such lengths? Wouldn't it have been best to just leave out 2 Samuel 11 and 12? When you think of a man after God's own heart, you typically... Don't think of a man who commits adultery and murder. And yet when you look at the text, you come away asking a question. What exactly does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? When the Lord used Samuel to announce to Saul his intentions of the next king, why the expression a man after God's own heart? What did God have in mind with the expression? And is it perhaps different from what you have imagined it to be? See, I believe the tendency is that expression of man after God's own heart, the focus being then upon the sparkling behavior of the man. Perfection, perhaps. Blameless, upright. What happens, though, when you know about this man? What happens when you read about David and you discover that his behavior doesn't quite measure up to your definition of the label, a man after God's own heart? I, 
I think if we take a closer look at it, we see this man after God's own heart. The focus here, I believe, and the focus in the psalm, Psalm 51, is upon how this man handles the sin in his life. As a man, he has flesh and blood, just like you and me. What does the Bible say about man and sin? Well, we go back to Romans where we were. In Romans 5, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. What then does man do with the sin that is present the sin that came through one man how does man deal with his sin church I, I stand here today recognizing realizing that many of you have at least some basic understanding of the context of Psalm 51 2 Samuel 11 and 12 provides a backdrop for the writing of Psalm 51 David is the writer, this man after God's own heart. You know, it's possible when you read Psalm 51, perhaps some of you think less of David because of his sin. I've never committed that act of adultery, you might say to yourself. Really? I turn you to Matthew chapter 5. These are red-letter words, meaning they're coming from Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or perhaps you're saying, I've not murdered anybody. Stay in Matthew chapter 5. Look at 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In Psalm 51, your tendency perhaps is to play the comparison game you know David's situation you come to Psalm 51 with some idea of his adultery some idea of his murder and you immediately begin to elevate self over David you dabble with the idea that that your life might not be so bad after all maybe you've read Psalm 51 through a lens of comparison and you've never truly seen the power of this inspired text maybe you've never allowed God's truth to penetrate your own soul as you read the account of this man ensnared in sin. Let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself delighting just a bit when you read Psalm 51? Delighting in the sense that this man after God's own heart has fallen, thereby making yourself perhaps look a little better? Or perhaps has this text then served as a license for you to sin? 
you have before you a psalm written by a man caught in the weight of his sin. I pray that this text is not solely an evaluation of David. Can we learn things from David? Yes, absolutely. I pray this text does not become a launch pad for comparing sins. In other words, I, I realize I have sins, but boy, compared to David. I pray also that this text does strengthen your faith. If one holds that a, that a man after God's own heart is perfect, and then sees in the text that the perfect one has fallen, this could very well lead you to fall into a state of despair. It's hopeless. If he can't do it, why am I even giving an effort? I pray that instead, this text provides you an opportunity to see your own sin. To put it on the front burner. To see it for what it really is. Ugly, vile, wicked, perverse, evil, dark, worldly, selfish. Just as a reminder, as we continue, perhaps it would be helpful to jot down, as the Lord brings to your attention some specific sins in your own life, to jot them down. We are going to be having a time of prayer this afternoon. It may be helpful as the Lord brings these to your attention to give them to the Lord this day. Not only does this text provide you an opportunity to see your own sin, but I, I pray also that, that you will see clearly what David does with his sin. That you'll be able to see clearly how David handles his sin. You see, he's writing on the other side of adultery and murder. His heart is open for examination and his audience is the Lord himself. Psalm 51 is oftentimes referred to as a psalm of repentance. What is it to repent? It's to be sorrowful for your sin. Sorrowful in, in the way that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. A godly sorrow leading to repentance. Not that of a worldly sorrow which leads to death. But a godly sorrow... To turn from it, to hate this sin, to forsake it, knowing that it is displeasing to the Lord. Knowing that to the Lord it is an abomination. But you know, repentance doesn't often stand on its own in the scriptures. Repentance and faith, they go hand in hand, don't they? I'd like to share with you some words from... A friend, I say friend because I have some, some friends that I, I consult from time to time. Greg Gilbert, 
has written a book on the gospel. What is the gospel? And in there, he speaks to this idea of repentance and faith. As they relate here, I'd like to share. Faith is, biblically speaking, reliance. A rock-solid, truth-grounded, promise-founded trust in the risen Jesus to save you from sin. Biblically speaking, we can back this up in Romans chapter 4, 20 and 21. He, speaking of Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Gilbert goes on and says, if faith is turning to Jesus and relying on him for salvation, repentance is the flip side of that coin. It is turning away from sin, hating it and resolving by God's strength to forsake it even as we turn to him in faith. He says, even if repentance doesn't mean an immediate end to our sinning, it does mean that we will no longer live at peace with our sin. We will declare mortal war against it and dedicate ourselves to resisting it by God's power on every front in our lives. Many Christians struggle hard with this idea of repentance because they somehow expect that if they genuinely repent, sin will go away and temptation will stop. When that doesn't happen, they fall into despair, questioning whether their faith in Jesus is real. It's true that when God regenerates us, He gives us power to fight against and overcome sin. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. But because we will continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified... We have to remember that genuine repentance is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than it is a mere change of behavior. Do we hate sin and war against it or do we cherish it and defend it? He speaks of one who was helpful to him in writing and clarifying some of these ideas. Listen to this. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. And the question becomes, so whose side do you take, your sins or God? You see, repentance, church, deals with sin. To speak of repenting, it's assumed that sin is involved. And if you read Psalm 51, you notice quickly that David doesn't dodge his sin. In its various forms, sin is mentioned at least 13 times in the 19 verses. So what is it that allows you to take inventory of your own sin. When you read Psalm 51, on what basis does David make his direct appeal to God? I think we have a great example right out of the gate in verse 1. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. There are two appeals here. Have mercy upon me, blot out my transgressions. The basis of those appeals, according to your loving kindness, According to your tender mercies. 
You see, one of the markers of true repentance is the recognition of God. By the way, God is referenced 31 times here in this psalm. One of the markers of true repentance is the recognition of God and His pardoning grace. Another one of my friends that I consulted this week said only when we turn away from looking at our own sin to look at the face of God to find His pardoning grace do we begin to repent. Only by seeing that there is grace and forgiveness with Him would we ever dare to repent and thus return to the fellowship and presence of the Father. You see, it's reliance upon God, upon who He is, trusting in the very nature and character of God. Repenting of your sin takes into consideration the character of God, i.e., His loving kindness, His tender mercies. To appeal to God without believing in Him is hollow. It's nothing more than, than rubbing the magical lamp, hoping that something will, will zap you and change your situation. You see, in that instance, you appeal to God apart from any relationship with God. You appeal to God from a self-serving perspective. Your appeal is not made from a God-dependent perspective, but a man-centered perspective. For the very thing that you're appealing for is for your own escape, perhaps. Lord, get me out of this! Or maybe it's an appeal just for your own safe place. Lord, I just want things to be back to normal. Or maybe it's simply an appeal from a very foundational level. You just want things your own way. I want it to be done my way. You see, repent, repentance operates from the perspective that God is who He says He is in this Bible. Because He alone is God, because He can be trusted with all of my life, I can appeal to Him. Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. The appeal is not simply a wish list, church. Instead, the appeal to God is a cry for His intervention. It's a cry for His cleansing. It's a cry for God to do what only He can do in regard to the sin in my life. Remember, the appeal flows out of sin that is present in your life. David asks for mercy, and he asks that God might blot out his transgressions. Sin is present in his life and he knows to go to the only one who can truly cleanse him. And yet how many of us opt to go elsewhere for cleansing, for healing, for restoration? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, if we agree with God, in other words, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the, the sin in David's life is, is not being swept under the rug. It's, initially, 
he didn't take it to the Lord, did he? If you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you see that. The Lord brought Nathan, the prophet, into his life. Got his attention through Nathan. In fact, listen to what Nathan says. 2 Samuel. Chapter 12. Verses 9 and 10. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. By the way, that's just a side note. With sin comes ramifications of sin. Okay? There are ramifications. You read David in the story, you see there are ramifications of his sin. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Two things I draw your attention to. First of all, in verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Verse 10, You have despised me. When we look at the text, we can see and look broader at the, the scope of text. For starters, David violated commandment number six, murder. Commandment number seven, adultery. Commandment number eight, stealing. He took something that was not rightfully his. Commandment number nine, bearing false witness. If you read his account, you see all the ways in which he was being deceptive, in which he was lying, in which he was maneuvering, he was leveraging. Here's Uriah, he's, he's serving his king in battle. And in the meantime, David's plotting his death for selfish reasons. And violates, obviously, commandment number 10, coveting a neighbor's wife. You know, not many of you would say that you despise the commandments of God, and yet your actions manifest the truth of the matter, don't they? Sin is seen as despising the commandments of God, but according to Nathan, it's also the despising of God himself. Do you view your sin in that manner? When you take stock of the sin in your life, do you see that you are despising his commandment and despising God himself by taking part in this particular sin? And let's not be tempted to think that only David's sin qualifies here. No, 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 no. Let's go to what Mr. Bridges would refer to as a, some of our respectable sins. Your unkind words, your bitter attitude, your selfish motivation, your ungodly thoughts. These sins count too. doesn't have to be what many of us would deem a big ticket sin to qualify. You see, God detests sin and doesn't tolerate sin. And I got to thinking, could this be perhaps why part of the problem today in the church 
part of the problem today in the family. Has the church exercised an ongoing diet of repentance and faith? Has the church grown complacent with her sin? Has the church catered to the way of the world so much that sin has been watered down, it's been softened, it's been glazed over, it's been even redefined? In fact, we don't even call it sin anymore. We find another label to put on it. Makes it appear not as bad. Church, God is holy and He's called you and me to be holy as well, to be pure, to be about purifying ourselves until the return of Christ. This is ongoing work, church. Repentance and faith is ongoing. Just as a manner of backing that up, Mark's gospel gives us great evidence of that. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There they are together. Repent and believe. These are words of Jesus himself. Those two verbs, repent and believe, they come to us in the form of a present imperative. All that to be said is this. A present imperative implies that this is something that is to be ongoing, church. Something that is to be continually happening. And writer says about this very thing, he says that repent and believe enjoin living in a condition of repentance and belief as opposed to momentary acts. Living as opposed to momentary acts. We're to live in this. Repentance and belief cannot be applied to certain areas of life, but not to others. In other words, we just pick and choose which ones we want to apply it to. No. It says, rather they lay claim to the total allegiance of believers. Church, as you look at Psalm 51, and you look at verse 3, do you acknowledge your own transgressions? Is your sin always before you? Is there recognition that your sin, while it may have ramifications upon others around you, is there recognition that your sin is against God and God only? And don't miss this in verse 4. Do you see your sin as evil? David did. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. A lot of us don't like to equate sin with evil, do we? Again, we like to call it something different. It doesn't sound as bad. David's heart is laid open and bare before God in this psalm. He speaks of things men today shy away from him. He addresses the sin in his life. It's real to him. And he sees his sin as first and foremost against God. You see, a man after God's own heart is not sinless. But he does understand how to handle his sin. He knows where to take his sin. 
He doesn't bury it. He's not silent about it. He doesn't try to blame others. But he takes responsibility for his own sin. And as a parent, that's one of the things that's a challenge in trying to teach your children, young children especially. That's why the Bible says train them up in the way they ought to go, the way they should go. Because the way they come out isn't the way they should go. Training them in the way of righteousness is hard work. Our children aren't the only ones that have that problem, though, are they? Second Samuel 12, verse 13. Nathan shares that parable, a story with him. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord, David says. That's a man after God's own heart, church. Notice what Nathan says to him on the heels of that. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I, I was immediately reminded of Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, sin leads to death. What you really deserve because of your sin is death. And yet Nathan tells David, after his confession of sin, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And what good news that must have been to David. What a refreshing word to hear in light of his sin. Taking responsibility for his own sin, David is pardoned. What he really deserved was death. But God grants to him mercy and grace. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. Psalm 51 5 tells you how David viewed the long-term history of his sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You see, this sin didn't just pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> David points to the origin of his sin. It goes back to the time when he was conceived in his mother's womb. Church, do you recognize the history of your own sin? You know, I have, I have a little girl. In fact, I have three, but I have one little girl. And she's cute as they come. And I realize as a dad, I'm biased. And you know, it's hard to see her and think that she too has that same ugly, wicked sin within her. But you know, it's already beginning to show the assertive will. Doesn't take long. And here's the thing, you don't even have to teach them. It's like weeds, they just pop up. 
the selfishness, the, the me-centeredness. Sin's present. You see, David sees his own sin and he recognizes what God desires. He recognizes what God desires. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. You see, sin is not just an outward manifestation, but it impacts the inward parts, doesn't it? You ever felt that brokenness on the inside for something you've done? Ever been plagued with a weight on the inside because of sin in your life? You see, God desires truth in the inward parts. Think, think about how that perhaps played out for David. Just think about this for a moment. He had a nice plan going. Just get Uriah home. Get him to sleep with his wife. No, that didn't work. Okay, well, just get him intoxicated and, and then maybe he'll be willing to go home and be with his wife. That didn't work. Uriah's not getting it. I'm trying to help him out here. Joab, here's a letter to take Uriah out. I'll just get rid of him in battle. No one will ever know. He receives word. Uriah's gone. Now just wait a few days while she mourns for her husband, and then she's all mine. Tell me, church, any truth in the inward parts as you consider the context of the psalm? After acknowledging his sin before God and taking responsibility for it, confessing it to God, he now petitions God mightily in verses 7 through 12. Oh, these are rich. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. By the way, there's so much more really that can be shared here. We're, we're skimming the surface with a lot of this. I understand that. That hyssop was part of the blood that was used for the Israelites when they put the blood over the door frames back in Exodus chapter 12. That cleansing. The blood. The passing over. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David longed for God to wash him. That he might be pure just as he is pure. Make me to hear joy and gladness. That the bones you have broken may rejoice. You see, when sin is present... The Holy Spirit's convicting presence in you does His work, calling you back to the things of God. Sin can make you feel like the bones within you are truly broken. Sin can make you ache. It can wear on you. For some time, the joy and gladness had been absent in David's life following his sin. And you know, I'm reminded here in the text that there seems to be a dearth of joy and gladness within the lives of believers. And I wonder if that dearth isn't due in part, at least, to sin taking its toll on you. Physically, emotionally, mentally, 
It's eating away at you. And the joy and gladness that ought to be there is absent. And sin can do that if it's not dealt with. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See, upon declaring that his sin is against God and God only, and upon acknowledgement of the ugliness of his sin, David petitions God to hide his face from his sins. I don't know about your children, but you know there are times, and I can recall even back when I was a child of some age, this probably is a tendency of many children. They like to, to hide when they're doing something that they ought not to be doing. And we had that conversation. If you have to hide to do it, it's probably not a good thing to do. And David here is, is crying out to the Lord to hide his face from his sin. There's a, there's a sense of shame. And that's, that's church, that's one of the elements involved in, in repentance. There's a shame involved in what's happened. God, please hide your face. Blot out all my iniquities. You know what I, you know what I, I gather from this? I gather that David's not just referring to Adultery and murder. But he's seeing sin, and, and, and these two maybe just expanded the whole issue for David. All my iniquities, blot them out, Lord. All of them. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then we get to 10, 11, and 12. Let's just sing those. Can we do that? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And renew our right spirit. See, the heart of David is laid open and bare in these verses. Think about this concern over being cast away from God's presence. Concern over the Holy Spirit being taken from him. This all due to his sin. You see, the serious implications of his sin are staring him right in the face. And I wonder 
at the moment of penning these words if he was reminded of Samuel's visit to his daddy's house? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. What's interesting is the very next verse says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Church, I have wonderful news from the scripture in John 14, verse 16. Jesus himself says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Forever. That's praise to the Lord. My sin is atoned for. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. The Spirit of God abides in me forever. And because of that good news, I now desire to live my life for Jesus, to walk in the newness of life Christ has secured for me, to leave behind the old things and to walk in a way that reflects a new creation has come. One other word about verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How great is it that you're saved? How wonderful is it that Jesus has completely forgiven you of your sin at the cross? How marvelous is it? And it's reminding you of a song, I'm sure. It did me as I was writing. That he took on your sin, your sin, and became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the way you live, does it point to the joy of your salvation? The way you live. This may be an appropriate prayer for the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's many, much in here that I believe is an appropriate prayer, but this perhaps especially. Restore unto me, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Reminded of, I was reminded of a lot of songs this week, church, okay? So bear with me. Thank God I am free, free, free from this world of sin. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been born again. Hallelujah, I'm saved, saved, saved by his wonderful grace. I'm so glad that I found out he would bring me out and show me the way. Look at the heart of David in verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. See, David isn't planning to waste his painful experience. Almost every single one of us in here, maybe all of us, have had some kind of painful experience. You may be going through a painful experience as we speak right now. I love what David says here. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. 
I'm going to be your spokesperson, Lord, to help navigate others away from this same course of sin. Look at 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. That ought not be a surprise that this is in here in light of what happened. The God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You know, while David did not slay Uriah the Hittite with his own hand, the guilt of Uriah's blood weighs heavily upon him. Deliver me, O God. Just an additional word here. Sin has a way of clinging to you. Remember, it easily ensnares you, sticks to you, clings to you. Guilt is not uncommon. Yet, if you are in Christ Jesus today, and if you're not in Christ Jesus, this ought to be wonderful news for you. At the cross, Jesus not only stripped the power of sin over you, but he also took away the guilt of sin. You have been justified. In short, you've been declared not guilty. You've been pardoned when you deserve death. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. Here it is again. Be of sin the double cure. Remember that song? What's, what's that all about? Double cure. How about this? Save from the power of sin. Save from the guilt of sin. Save from wrath and make me pure. See, church, Christ has, has secured that same double cure for each one of you who, by faith, believes in him and his finished work at the cross. Does your tongue sing aloud of his righteousness? Does your mouth show forth his praise? Verse 15. God has given to you a built-in instrument to declare his praises, to sound forth his glorious salvation. Let's not use his instrument for unrighteousness, but delight in using it for the glory of the Lord. Look at 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. In other words, David says here, I, I, could, often, I could offer you, Lord, a thousand bulls. That's not going to do the job. David pens some words right here that penetrate the heart. The heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and broken and contrite, repentant heart. And it, causes, it should cause to ask, you some, ask some questions here. Have you, have you been trying to offer God something other than a broken and repentant heart? Have, have, you, been, have you tried to, to bargain with God about your sin? Have you tried to make things up to God based upon your actions or, or deeds? Lord, Lord, next time I'll get that one right. Have you tried to leverage your works, perhaps, as sufficient payment for your sins? 
Church, God is after a broken and contrite heart. What I find interesting is that in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament, where we're familiar with the sacrifices of lambs, bulls. We don't necessarily see that message adhered to right here. David is pointing to the heart. This man after God's own heart. You know, I was reminded of the prophets. Micah chapter 6, 6 through 8. Listen to these words. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, my own child, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What about Joel? Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13. Listen to these words. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Joel the prophet then speaks these words. So rend your heart and not your garments. You see, there were visible signs in the Old Testament, and you can read about this in the Old Testament. The visible signs of repentance, oftentimes people were, um, had ashes and, and tore their clothes and sackcloth, and, and there were some visible signs of what it looked like for one to repent. And Joel here says, rend your heart and not your garments. You see, these Old Testament folks understood what Jesus was talking about years to come. They're speaking about it in the Old Testament. It's not all about externals. Just bring a bull and a lamb and everything's going to be okay. No, the pro they understood this. This is heart work. And this is a theme that you're going to be hearing quite often as we continue in 2012. Walking humbly with God, walking in repentance and faith, walking with hearts fixed upon Jesus, walking that puts everything on the table and asks of God, what would you desire to do with this, Lord? My life, my marriage, side note, I got to stop on this one. This week, I, I, I had some, some conversations with some other guys to work with. Church... The more I'm around that, the more I'm just outside the house. Maybe you pick up on this too. Loving your spouse, saying a good word about your spouse, that is old, that's, that's crusty, that's not thought of by the world. Men, will you please stand up and speak some godly things about your wife? Express to somebody how much you love your wife, please. Because a lot of what I hear, granted many of these men don't have a relationship with the Lord. Divorce is a common word. It's like something in my pocket and I just pull out. It ought not be. You see, when we come together, we come together as one under Christ. 
something different about, there should be something different about the marriage. Taking my life, take that marriage, take my family, take my work, and ask of the Lord, what would you desire of me in these areas of my life? What would you desire of me? In other words, take my life and let it be what? Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Right? It's this kind of heart work, according to David, that God does not despise. Look how he closes in 18 and 19. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. That first read, that, those two verses don't seem to even fit in this psalm. Anybody else ever read that and think, what are these two verses? When did these get written? It just doesn't seem like these two verses really just fit in here. It seems as though his concern as he closes this psalm is for the nation. And thinking about the context of his psalm, it's that of taking his sin, repenting of his sin, turning away from his sin, turning toward the Lord. Lord, please do not allow my sin to impact what happens to this nation of yours. <laughs> do good in your good pleasure to Zion. The sacrifices of righteousness. May, may the nation come before you, Lord, with a heart of repentance, with a heart of brokenness, and the offering of bulls on the altar. Church, that's an offering that is costly. We're not talking about pigeons. We're not talking about lambs. We're talking about bulls. This would be a very costly sacrifice. May the people of this nation realize the high price of sin. And may each one of you here today who occupy a chair realize the high price of your sin. Sin's price tag cost God his, his only begotten son. You might recall Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. What you may not recall is the first of those 95 Theses. It reads, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the first of 95 theses. Church, today you have an opportunity to make today the day you turn from your sin, repentance, to hate it and forsake it, knowing that it is displeasing to God, and in addition, turn to Christ. Acts 3.19. Peter says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That refreshing comes from the presence of the Lord, church. Acts 26.20, Paul, in speaking in his defense, says, Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Not just repent, turn to God, but do works 
befitting repentance. So as you turn from your sin, turn then, flee to the Lord Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as we sang earlier. Turn your heart unto Him. Walk in the way of righteousness. May the Holy Spirit convict each one here. This church body as a whole of the sin that is being hidden, the sin that's being swept under a rug, the sin that some people are coddling as though it were some comfortable nighttime blanket. Holy Spirit, come. One writer said only the Holy Spirit can successfully expose a sin for what it is. Think about that. Only the Holy Spirit can expose a sin for what it really is. Holy Spirit, come and do your convicting work in this place that every heart represented here might be broken before God that the sin which so easily entangles would be repented of and acknowledged for what it is, that we would take responsibility for our sin, and that hearts then would be longing, hearts then would desire to be restored to the fellowship of Christ. I'm going to ask if you would to just bow, close your eyes. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer in a short minute. As we come to the close of this psalm, I was reminded of some words of one of my friends. He asked a question that I believe is a very important question for all of us. So I'm going to share it with you as we close and use a few of his words even as a course of our prayer together. When you stand before God at the judgment, I wonder what you plan to do or say in order to convince him to count you righteous and admit you to all the blessings of his kingdom. Every Christian whose faith is in Christ alone will do this by God's grace. They will simply and quietly point to Jesus. And this will be their plea. O oh God, do not look for any righteousness in my own life. Look at your Son. Count me righteous, not because of anything I've done or anything I am, but because of Him. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death that I deserved. I have renounced all other trusts and my plea is in Christ alone. Justify me, O God, because of Jesus. Amen? As a response to the word, 
I'm going to ask if you would open the hymnals. Turn to page 210. 